So picture an ancient courtyard just off a narrow cobblestone street in Europe, southern Europe. The sun is blinding, making it hard to see the small dark window at the far end of the space. You cannot see beyond the window because it has a lazy Susan built into it, blocking any view. The ritual is to approach the window and read the menu taped up next to it. The list is virtually a catalog of wondrous baked goods. Once you've made a selection, you speak your order directly into the lazy Susan. If you do not know the routine, the long silence following your order can be baffling. But once you put down the necessary money with an audible clink, the lazy Susan begins to turn, and out the other end comes a white bag filled with delicious cookies, muffins, or tarts. I bet some of you know about this drill. Throughout southern Europe, but primarily in Spain, cloistered nuns earn a living by baking and selling their treats. The silent, lazy Susan is their only contact with the outside world, honoring their commitment to remain within their secluded community. When life is hectic or discouraging, perhaps the idea of being able to retreat and limit your contact with others is appealing. Had some name tag conversations today with people that might like that. At the same time, it's easy to be dismissive, thinking, how can anyone who lives within a small, unchanging group of people be living a real life? Aren't they just escaping life? How boring. Well, from my reading and from stories I've heard from clergy who lived in convents, the experience is the opposite of escape from daily life. Living in a cloistered community magnifies all the issues of living. You cannot escape others, nor can you escape yourself. The spiritual work in these confined spaces means becoming adept in the art of human relations and self-reflection. Committed to being together, the nuns have to figure out how to get along, and most importantly, how to get along for the long haul. They learn to cope compassionately with all the issues of being in a group. In the long run, their closed community is a type of controlled experiment where they get to fully discover themselves and their relationships. They study their own habits and reactions that create problems or support peace. So what evolves is a community where respect and civility are the primary spiritual practices. While hope is not a monastery or a convent, despite our being like one tucked away up on this hill far from the modern life on 81st and Sheridan, on a very fundamental level, the church serves a similar purpose as a convent or a monastery. We are an intentional community. We voluntarily come together because nowhere else 
in our lives are we committed to exploring every facet of what it means to be alive and what it means to know that we will die. Here, we celebrate all the milestones of life, from announcing births to embracing the decision of two people, no matter their gender, to join together as one, to mourning deaths, and all loss. My favorite description of this joint religious project of ours is, church is the place where you get to practice what it means to be human. Church is the place where you get to practice what it means to be human. So what I take from that phrase, to practice, is that being a church is best done over and over and over again. It is a process that unfolds over time because church has different meanings at different points in our lives. I had different things to learn about becoming human when I was eight, than than now that I am 58. Although I hate to admit, some of them are exactly the same. (laughs) There is an art to becoming a church just as there is an art in practicing the piano, practicing medicine, and practicing patience. A church must both reflect and critique the society surrounding it. Since that culture is ever-changing, the church's response must evolve. For example, pressing contemporary issues of overusing resources, global warming, advancing income inequity, increasing poverty, snowballing prison populations, devaluing education, diminishing privacy, and exploding technological advances all demand that we become informed and thoughtful in how we act as individuals and as a church. The tricky part is we will not all agree what is the best response. This inevitable variety of responses, this unavoidable difference, this necessary and vital diversity, is what brings me to the last part of that quote, the part about being human. Church is a place where you get to practice what it means to be human. Being human can never be perfected. We have to witness the conflicts within ourselves and the disagreements among ourselves. These will not go away. But we can't become more skillful in accepting them. We can learn when it is helpful to take action and when the wise thing to do is to be silent and still. Since part of being human is making mistakes, we have to give room to ourselves and to the person sitting next to us to be imperfect. We hold churches to a higher standard, but it too is an imperfect institution. Some Unitarian churches, when they are welcoming new members in a formal worship service, honestly acknowledge that this human imperfection is central and is a two-way street. Their liturgy reads, there will come a time when this church disappoints you, just as there will come a time when you 
disappoint the church. Admitting this human tendency to make mistakes and for our institutions to make mistakes can be just as honest when said at a wedding ceremony or a memorial service or child dedications. This honesty is not condoning mistreatment of each other, but setting the groundwork for learning from and healing from mistakes. The spiritual work surrounding our imperfections is endless and best done in community because we can be so quick to justify our actions and rationalize events. Forgiveness is necessary since no one can be perfect. Learning how to apologize is another critical spiritual practice you can practice freely in church. Accepting our imperfections and those of others means taking responsibility for our own actions. One of the best expressions of how to cope with everyone mistake, everyone's mistakes comes from an ongoing class I help with at the Tulsa Jail. The class is sponsored by Tulsa's Domestic Violence Intervention Services and helps inmates see their own criminal and disempowered thinking. You heard Sherry Curry speak about this work in this pulpit last month. And some Hope members have begun volunteering in the jail, by the way. No matter the subject, each class begins and ends with rituals to affirm and empower the students. I was taken off guard the first time I heard them use the Reinhold Niebuhr prayer at the end of a class. The prayer is a terrific tool for humility and realizing we do not control everything. You are likely very familiar with it. Normally the prayer goes, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In the jail, they say it this way. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, and the courage to change the people I can. When I heard that, I almost jumped out of my chair because it seemed they had changed the intent of the prayer. Wait, you can't change people? Trying to fix others is where much of our suffering and pain comes from. Oh, our relationships, no matter the institution, be it church, jail, work, school, or home, you can't change others. Luckily, I sat still. And they finished the prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the people I can, and the wisdom to know I am the only person I can change. The wisdom to know I am the only person I can change is the wisdom of the jail, of the cloistered convent, and yes, of church. That prayer summarizes our most profound and essential work together, to only focus on knowing and changing ourselves. This inward attention may sound a bit selfish and self-absorbed, but it is the necessary bedrock of all peaceful interactions 
and of all effective social justice work. I've been following some threads on the internet about the inevitable decline and death of Unitarian Universalist churches. There are similar threads on Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist, <laughs> non-denominational evangelical, and Jewish Facebook pages, blogs, and Twitter feeds. The, dwi the dwindling membership in churches and synagogues is not new news. The change is undeniable. But I am not yet convinced of the death of these religious organizations. You might have already guessed I'm an institutionalist. I believe in the power of church and of freely gathering together. Some of the online critiques point to theology. If we were more humanist, we would be vital and growing. If we reclaimed more of our Christian history and ritual, we would be thriving. Other critiques blast the church for being outdated and unwilling to change. We're acting out of a post-World War II, 1950s greatest generation model of worship in a post-modern, internet-driven, millennial and Generation Z world. No drums and projectors in the sanctuary, no growth. No Twitter in the middle of a sermon, no youth. We have lots to talk about, don't we? Today's reading from the New Yorker about the ancient Turkish temple ruins say to me that church religious worship is an ancient human activity that is not going away anytime soon. We no longer erect giant multi-ton T-shaped limestone pillars, but... <laughs> The similarity of this nature-inspired, rock-filled sanctuary to the stones of Gobekli Tepe is not lost on me. <laughs> Church and its ritual fulfill a deep human need to gather in order to both understand life and death. The online criticisms I am paying close attention to are the ones that question our Unitarian Universalist way of participating in the world beyond our churches. If you buy my argument that we come together to practice what it means to be human, then what does this mean to, about our call to be human beyond these rock walls? Our call to better the world. The blogs and Facebook posts call most UU churches to insular and self-contained to even reach outside themselves successfully. A colleague in Texas spells out this criticism most clearly. He writes in his blog, damningly I might add, Unitarian Universalist congregations are generally mission-less. Many of our congregations have a defining characteristic in common. They have no discernible mission other than to be gathering, to be a gathering place for like-minded people. Churches become an oasis, a refuge, an escape. The most pressing work of the church has become maintaining an institution and a physical plant so that there is a place to gather. Most of our churches have, in fact, become quite adept at this, Unfortunately, the community they create is not very generative. 
The congregation may do a wonderful job at maintaining a space for like-minded people to gather, but two things are generally true of these groups. They are closed insular circles, and they do little that deeply involves them in or has any meaningful impact on the world around them. I responded to his post because I thought he was making pretty broad generalizations about UU churches. His argument seemed too black and white. He appeared to be saying that we cannot maintain a space for like-minded people to gather and have a meaningful impact on the world. For me, it's both and. How the church serves as an oasis, a refuge, and an escape informs how we call out civic and political institutions that do not share these virtues, but instead are cruel, brutal, ineffective, and inhuman. How we learn to have healthy relationships within our intentional community making room for each other's mistakes and owning up to our own, is exactly how we learn to improve healthy relationships beyond the church. The wisdom that comes from knowing I am the only person I can change gets best expressed out in the world by granting the same autonomy to others, by not imposing our will, even if our intent is generous. Too much charity has come from imagining what would be helpful or giving what is simplest rather than developing long-term relationships with those who are different and in need. Our efforts to help others require that we ask first if we can be helpful, then we can ask how can we be helpful. The modes of empathy we learn in church strengthen our abilities to be an ally with those in need. We indeed are wasting our time and resources if our work outside these church walls is ineffective or merely inflating our egos. But if we take the lessons about being human inside the sanctuary out into the world, then we have the power and wisdom to do many great things together. This is why we have church. May it be so.